Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 20. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our deep thought segment, I'll be sharing my experiences studying for and taking the California bar exam, and Cynthia and I will look back at our first year of the podcast and share our future goals for Cidabrona. For our case segment, we'll be analyzing Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that held that a woman's right to have an abortion was embedded in the privacy that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protects. And for our current event segment, we'll discuss Project Dragonfly. So let's jump right in to our deep thought segment because Yvette, you and I have not spoken in forever and you just no. got through taking the California bar exam, which is one of the hardest bar yes. exams. So just before we even get into that, how are you feeling? I feel good. My life is pretty low stress these days. I've just been like hanging out and drinking and going to my favorite places in Northern California. Oh yeah, and then yesterday I finally secured a spot in Tucson. I feel good, I feel relieved, and I feel like I'm just totally ready to start this new chapter. Congratulations, that is so awesome, and I'm so excited for your traveling that you're gonna start doing in, a, in like a couple days, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, we leave for Oaxaca on Monday. Oh my God, Yay. that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, since we have you here and you just took the bar, I want to get a little bit more from you on your study process. Like, I feel like that's just useful knowledge that we have to share. Yeah. Um, so I used a Themis bar prep course, and this is not an advertisement for Themis, but I did really like it. Um, and like, I felt really lucky, too, because I literally won this bar prep course in a raffle. Like, there was a, our school had a public interest bar prep course raffle for Themis, and I won the bar prep course that way, and, like, felt really grateful because it, it costs, like, $1,600, I think, or maybe even more, um, and I feel like, as a little side note, the bar exam is a total racket, like, it costs so much money to take it. The bar prep courses are like thousands of dollars and then to register it also costs it ends up costing like a thousand five hundred dollars that is <sighs> such a fucking scam Ugh, i hate it it is a scam yeah because it, yeah it's like you just don't have a choice you have to pay did you just follow like famous's step by step or was there anything like special that you did about your studying yeah so like um the reason i really like famous is that they would set up daily tasks for you and like that was so important for me as a person who's kind of neurotic about my studying like they would give me a list of tasks and like that would give me a definite stop time every day and I think that that's what helped me like stay sane and healthy like um, Joseph my partner commented that he felt like I handled this studying really really well and like I didn't have any freakouts like I, n I normally might and I think it's because of the daily task list and like feeling like I being able to have a sense of completion at the end of the day I think was really mm -hmm. useful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's so dope uh yeah that's 
that's so important and I like that sound of that because it almost lets you like check something off every day exactly yeah and and like I'm sure there's people who like would complete the tasks like I'm sure there's people at our school who would complete the tasks and then be like I want to do like extra practice questions ah! but <laughs> <laughs> I I tried to like I just reminded myself that like taking breaks is healthy and like yeah take like taking breaks makes me more effective in in the long term and it's just beneficial for me how long did you study for like how many weeks i started studying in like the second week of may and then i took the test the last week of july so like like (laughs) we don't have to do the math right now (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and like I think that was the perfect amount of time. I mean, it was kind of hard because for those first three weeks I was studying, I was still in school. I was finishing my last quarter. And so I wasn't doing that much studying my first few weeks. It was just kind of like whenever I could fit it in. Usually I was doing like a few hours on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then probably like the first week of June, that's when I started studying hardcore every day. And I would study in between, like, the hours ranged. I would say, like, most of the time I was studying for five hours a day. But, like, there were some days where I I did, like, ten-hour days. Okay. I think that's good to be flexible to, like, what you can do every day, you know? Like, sometimes you can do ten hours, sometimes you can't. So I I think that that sounds really healthy. So I know you said you didn't... um, you know you were very like had a very healthy approach through the whole process but like did you have stress at all and like how did you handle that if you did yeah it's just it's really high stakes and it's it's stressful for me because I already have a staff attorney position and so like if I I not only have to pass for myself but it's like embedded in the expectation of my job and like also, I just really want to start actually practicing deportation defense and having my own cases. So there's just like so much on the line for me. Um, but I meditated every day in the morning. Um, and like my meditation practice has become so important to me. And I'm really happy that I developed the practice before starting this really stressful job, um, mm-hmm. too. Um, and it like, it meditation helps me stay focused and like I think it's also it's just like kind of a spiritual experience to set aside time where like solely dedicated to focusing on my breathing Mm -hmm. Um, like in such a I feel like I live my life in such a fast-paced way like it's just really nice to slow down even for 20 minutes a day it can like really restructure your whole day Um, and give you perspective and like help you stay present um i think that's like the most beneficial thing for me that the meditation practice has brought me is being able to be present because like the stress gets to me when i think about it all the time when like i can't Mm -hmm. relax because i'm in in the back of my mind i'm thinking about the bar exam um and like the meditation helps me stay present like okay no i'm done studying i did my 
task list for the day and like now I'm just going to be present and like hang out with my partner or like read this book or like watch tv whatever it is yeah that sounds really good okay and can you tell us about the actual bar exam because like what is it like how many days does it take like what are the different sections okay yeah um it was two days and on uh it's like eight hours each day and you get so that's also why like it's kind of good to approach studying as like kind of endurance building for the test itself because I think for me that was what was one of the hardest aspects of it was having to sit and focus for eight hours um and so the first day was the essays um and we had five essays and um we were given like 10 possible 10 I think um possible subjects that they could ask us about and then on the actual exam they only ask you about for five and then five though like still a ton i know dude (laughs) and like i was expecting you to say like two or three and i was just like that makes sense but you said five (laughs) yeah i know and it's like uh i just don't really understand the purpose of it because it's like I'd learned about stuff I am never going to think about again, like corporations. Well, I will be thinking about corporations later, but like, like trusts and wills and like, I don't know, I guess it's good that I know how to write a will now, but it wasn't necessary. And, and then there's like this thing called the performance test and like, it's 90 minutes, you're given 90 minutes and basically uh, you're given an assignment, like something that you might encounter in a legal internship. Like the assignment is like, write a, write a legal argument that we can present to the court about this, or like, like write a research memo about this. And then they give you like cases to read, and then they give you like evidence and stuff to compile, facts to compile, and then you have 90 minutes to write whatever the assignment is. So that was the first day and then the second day was 200 multiple choice questions oh fun goody <laughs> I did like that the essays were first because I feel like that's kind of I think that's the harder part because like on mul- you know for multiple choice like at least you like the answers are provided for you and you can like totally guess if you have no idea but like the essays are really nerve-wracking because like they're they're basically issue spotters and it's Mm -hmm. like if you don't remember the rule it's really stressful yeah but i kind of like that you get that over first though yeah no yeah exactly i I like that too because then like the second day i'm not gonna say it was relaxed but like (laughs) it felt more doable i guess and i feel like we already talked about this a little bit but what how do you feel about the bar in general? Like, do you feel like now that you take it's taken the bar and if like when you pass it, are you going to feel like, oh, yeah, that was like an accurate way to test whether I'm ready to be an attorney? No, I think it's really silly. Like, I think I think like maybe something would make sense where like like I w- would be required to take an exam related to immigration law, for example. 
like that would make sense to me if it was like oh if it was all immigration centered i feel like that would be fair because like like the performance test for example like that is testing a skill that you will actually need to employ like you are gonna need to do a task like this and but the fact that i had to learn community property corporations trusts like like kind of like relearn the basics of contracts and tort it's like it just wasn't necessary like i just i don't need to know this much about the law (laughs) for the specific thing that i want to do and like it just it it just feels like a purposeful barrier um because it is a really difficult experience like at the end of the first day i saw someone crying just it like Hmm. yeah it takes a lot out of you It, it just kind of feels like this is a common theme I feel like in the legal profession like unnecessarily hard task that's done out of tradition and to keep people out and to be elitist yeah yeah no I hear you I'm not looking forward to this experience one other one last question about this I wanted to isn't there like an ethics portion to the exam because like I've heard folks say like oh you have to meet with an ethics committee and like if you have like for example a criminal record that part will be difficult or if you've been arrested so is there like Mm -hmm. an interview portion to it there's no interview portion but there's the moral and character fitness aspect of the application which is also another strange thing that feels like it's just designed to exclude people from the profession so like you have to have five personal references and you have to like list how long you've known them and you have to list like, what their job is and then also one of those people has to have passed the bar and they send them like a little like sheet of questions and they they're just like questions that you write yes or no to or like I don't know and the questions are like do you think this person is fit to practice law do you think that this person is honest and trustworthy uh shit like that and then like you also have to list every single job you've had every single place you've lived the last 10 years and you have to like list any involvement with the with law enforcement like if you were arrested like if you anything 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 you have to list it and like like even things that you might not expect like if you've been evicted before you have to write that and so and so that's kind of where it gets problematic because if you have had any involvement with law enforcement that's going to be frowned upon um because in a twisted way the bar examiners like the bar committee thinks that that has some that that reflects in some way your ability to be a lawyer like your honesty and trustworthiness it just makes no sense it also feels like a comment on your moral character generally you know because these aren't just like professional references it sounds like it's just well maybe they're all all professional references but it sounds like they're trying to judge your moral character and the fact that they would allow like interactions with law enforcement to be a part of that just really shows that they don't consider humans as as the full beings that they are yeah it's it's very classist i feel just the fact that you have to list their profession is strange to me it's just strange is there anything else you want to tell people about the bar before we like start reflecting on the past year of cerebronas no just people people can do it 
Yay. Take the California <laughs> bar. <laughs> yes. Congratulations, Eva. I'm so, so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it would be a good idea just to, like, reflect on our year because we haven't really sat down and, like, thought about how Cerebronas has grown from when we first started it. And at this point, it's been more than a year since we started it. Um, yeah, I was like, it was, we had left school and I was just like, oh, let me like, I'm one year is coming up. Let me like post about it. And then I realized like it had been a month ago. It was like yeah. in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask what your favorite segment that we've done has been and why, why was it your favorite or why is it your favorite? So I tried to choose one and I couldn't. And I think yeah. I have to say, like, my favorite is just like the deep thoughts segment generally, because we've done mm-hmm. topics like gaslighting, internalized racism and respectability politics, which I thought I like just I love talking about them. But it also helped me like each time we talked about them, it helped me process something that was going on in my life at the moment, mm-hmm. because these things are mm-hmm. such a regular part of our experiences, especially when you're in like in in PWIs. So yeah, it just it just having predominantly state, white institutions. Yes, thank you. Uh, it helped me just it just helped me my my emotional well being, you know, to be able to talk about this, mm-hmm. and then it just I don't know, it just makes me feel better about the actual lived experiences when I get to process them and when maybe 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 what we're talking about helps someone else process their own experience I know it's so rewarding because I totally agree like the podcast is beneficial for me like it just helps it's like a creative outlet for me and it's amazing that something that helps me so much is enjoyed by other people too yeah what about yours what was your favorite segment do you have one I, I really liked our interview with Isa Noyola because I really appreciated how generous she was in sharing her wisdom and her experiences. And I remember it was our first interview ever <laughs> and she comforted us beforehand about it. Like we were so nervous and yeah. she had no idea. She was like, wait, this is your first interview ever on the podcast? Like, yeah. <laughs> she was like, it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just a, it was a really warm moment and I I really like bringing diverse perspectives that we have blind spots for and sharing that knowledge mm-hmm. with listeners too like we had wanted to do a trans-centered episode and I'm glad that we made the decision to interview Isa because like we shouldn't be talking about experiences that we don't know about and it was just like really special to be able to bring that knowledge to other people yeah and she was just amazing amazing so much like words of wisdom you know like every time she was talking I remember I was sick and I was just like no I'm missing it (laughs) yeah and we like yeah I feel like she inspired a few of our episode titles like yeah yeah complex hold complexity yeah like the ideas from that interview carried forward to other episodes so that was really cool interview yes agreed uh okay so what has surprised you about the process of Cerebronas or the podcast and everything? Has there been anything? How many, like, how many people with radical politics there are in this world? Like, you know, our politics are pretty left. <laughs> and we have yeah, over 8,000. Yeah. 
and we have over 8,000 followers and like we're talking about prison and police abolition and open borders like that's just really fucking cool like it's just it's inspiring and heartening to know that so many people are also imagining different futures and that like yes our politics are very left but like the things that we're thinking about make sense to people who care about others and who recognize interdependence yeah i completely agree like every time like someone will comment on our stuff or post on instagram it always feels like i know that person you know and like people like Mm -hmm. in our dms will send us different things and stuff and it just feels like we're friends you know i don't know like i keep telling people like if i send you memes if i send you stuff like that's to me like one of the best forms of intimacy because it's i don't know (laughs) so yeah i really love the community me too me too what has anything surprised you throughout this process no i just agree with you i i didn't know whether we would find a community and so the fact that we did feels really great Mm. looking back do you think that your original goals and desires for starting the podcast have been fulfilled yeah i don't know what i expected and this is definitely just I couldn't have predicted this by any means. I really thought it was just going to be yeah. like my mom and your mom and my dad and like <laughs> my sister listening. So, yeah. <laughs> but I think what's hard for me, it's like it's hard to like know who our listeners are. And I and it. Yeah. And so that's hard for me to gauge because I really want to reach like people like Latinas who are considering law school and don't know whether it's the right decision for them and don't know anything about the law and whether like legal analysis is attractive to them and so that portion is kind of difficult because i wish we had a better like i wish i could have a better gauge on whether we were reaching folks who i hope to be a resource for and who i would want them Mm. i want i would want to be there for them Mm. what about you yeah uh i think my original goals have been surpassed like I'm so grateful for this online community that we've created and this podcast brings me so much joy while I'm practicing law that is really emotionally difficult for me especially at this moment um and like I'm just really I'm just grateful for how it all turned out because like I wanted it to turn into something like this and it did but it like became even bigger than I thought it would be and it's just dope yeah and well i just also want to say like you said like oh the online community we've created it and i want to yes like i think i was a a part of it in the beginning but i also want to give you full credit because instagram and our social media has been almost entirely you and i post every now and then but you've done great work with that like i love following us on instagram because (laughs) you post amazing things (laughs) i love doing the instagram shout out to the insta followers Okay, do you okay, but what are your remaining goals? What other goals do you have for the podcast? Yeah, so I want us to go and do campus events, host panels and discussion groups on campuses. Like I just wanna meet our listeners in person and like share knowledge with each other. Um and yeah, I hope that we get to do that. Um as a plug, if you're wondering how to bring us to your campus ally yourself with a campus group that has funding pay us and bring us to your campus (laughs) um what about you cynthia what are your future goals for the podcast 
I think my only goal right now is I would love for us to be a part of like a podcast network or like a label. I don't know what it's called because I would love if someone else took care of the editing and like (laughs) maybe we could record in a studio because then that would just let us have like the time we spend editing, the time we do everything else. Yeah. We could use that time for content, you know, and for and developing for the content, content yeah. further and yeah. just, yeah, it just would allow us more time to do that. Oh, also, I, I guess in terms of like, oh, hosting panels and turn on campuses, I just wanted to sh- mention that I'll be in Nashville this fall quarter. I'm going to be externing there. And so I would love to meet folks in Nashville if we have any Nashville listeners. Oh my gosh, you should meet Priska. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, that'd be so cool. <laughs> That's cool. Oh my gosh, you should hang out with my friend Israel. Wait, you met Israel? Yeah, I did. I remember. Yeah, he's um he's gonna be a middle school teacher in Nashville. Oh wow. Okay, so many connections. I'm glad I mentioned this. Yay. Mm-hmm. So, anything else you want to add to this year reflection before we go on to our case? No, just that I'm really grateful for everybody who listens to our podcast. Like, I really, really love you all. Okay, well, let's leave it with that. Okay, <laughs> Yvette, you and I are just okay. so in sync today. For the case segment, we wanted to talk about Roe versus Wade. Cynthia, you posted uh, something about abortion rights, and you asked people to comment if they wanted us to do a Roe v. Wade segment, and like 60 people commented like, yes, please. So here we are, doing the Roe versus yeah. Wade. Yeah, so let's start with the year of the case. So Roe v. Wade came down in 1973. Uh, I think it's just important context. But let's get into, like, the actual context of Roe v. Wade. Like, what was the United States beforehand? What were the abortion laws at the time? Just because I think it's it's really important to contextualize this particular case. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think the, the history of abortion is just fascinating, too. So, during the 18th century, up until around 1880, abortions were available at common law, and it was actually a widely done procedure. Um, And then at that time, they were only illegal after quote-unquote quickening, which was this like pseudo-scientific, highly subjective term for when the pregnant person could feel the fetus moving within them. Um, And like, it was just really, it was a really malleable concept. and at that point, no one, like not even the Catholic Church, held the stance that life existed after conception and before quickening. And I think that's important to bring up because like the terms of this debate feel really static. Like it seems like positions are so deeply entrenched, but a lot of these stances are more new than you might think. Yeah, and like it wasn't until 1895 that the Catholic Church began condemning what it called therapeutic abortions, um, which were abortions to save the life of the pregnant person. Um, 
Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yes. And then a fun fact. I love this because I'm always just like, ooh, yes, follow the money. So abortions <laughs> were began being criminalized in the 1880s, but this was because it was being pushed by the newly established American Medical Association. And so dun, dun, dun. the medical establishment began calling for the criminalization of, of abortion, partly in an effort to eliminate doctors' competitors, such as midwives and homeopaths. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And, yeah, I I think I was so shocked to hear this, but it makes, it makes sense. Because there's, like, a gender component to this. Like, doctors were men, and midwives tended to be women. And um, they were, like, like, the American Medical Association's goal was to professionalize medicine and to make it so that doctors were perceived as like the ultimate holders of medical knowledge and like um you know the only ones who should be able to do a procedure like this um and it's sad to say how much they've actually succeeded you know like i mean yeah (laughs) it sucks but they won they won this battle yeah yeah so okay fast forward to 1973 and at this point, abortion is illegal in 46 states. Um, although, kind of, the tide was like, you could argue it was changing because in 1970, Hawaii became the first state to legalize abortion. Um, you thought that law only applied to Hawaii residents. Um, and then that same year, New York also legalized abortion with no residency requirement. And actually, we're, I was reading that in 1972, the year before, the court decided Roe, 100,000 women traveled to New York because that that was a state that didn't have a residency requirement. And then by the time of the year that the case was decided, 1973, abortion was also legally available in Alaska and Washington. And I think the point that you made about New York is so important because it shows the class yeah. issue that's so behind this and often, you know, mm-hmm. because of how class interacts with race, like that issue as well. Because the women who had a means to travel did travel and so women were traveling to new york or traveling abroad for safe and legal (laughs) abortions but women that were lower income they used back alley abortions and if you look into this like if you look into like the coat hangers and stuff like that Mm -hmm. it's there's it's like there's a very very painful history there and so Mm -hmm. there like it was just very unsafe a lot of women were dying and yeah. so there's actually estimates estimates that from the 1950s in the 1950s and the 1960s the rate there was a range from about 200,000 to 1.2 million illegal abortions a year. And so yeah, it was just that was just so unhealthy for women. I think this is like such an important point in this debate like I think I would just wish that we could approach this as a public health issue instead of a religious issue I know that that's like very naive of me to want but like the fact is that when you make abortion illegal it doesn't make the practice go away it just makes it really unsafe <laughs> and you know cause it's like you can't force people to have children like that they do not want or cannot provide for and so p- women are going to do whatever they need to do um in order to protect themselves and their bodies and it's just it's scary to think to think about these things like coat hangers yeah and it's also just so fucking 
hypocritical where it's just like jesus fucking christ you're making abortions really difficult but you're also making like access to contraceptives and birth control really difficult oh and you also place all of that burden on women like you know so it's just Mm -hmm. like it's like you know at no point are we allowed to be have autonomy over our own bodies Mm. okay so let's let's give a little bit more information on jane roe who was the named plaintiff in the case so her name was actually norma mccorby and this case is arising out of texas so she was a she was a resident of texas and she was given the name jane roe to protect her privacy and so she actually had previously given birth twice and she had given both up uh, given both of her children up for adoption and so in 1969 which is when her case went uh, when she filed her case abortion was only allowed in texas for the purpose of saving a woman's life and so Yvette, do you want to talk a little bit more about like what she what became of her like throughout the mm-hmm. litigation and then afterwards yeah just like a little commentary on the speed of supreme court decisions uh, roe actually gained her supreme court victory after she had given birth in the pregnancy at issue so her legal relief did not come in time unfortunately uh something that's just like kind of bizarre about the story is that later in life she retracted her support of choice and autonomy and began began advocating against abortion rights and became like a really staunch conservative strange i don't know how to explain it strange yeah it's it seems like she just became very religious you know and entered that mind frame so we kind of already went over the facts of the case so Roe was a Texas resident who wanted an abortion and Texas prohibited it. And actually something that's interesting is that two other so- suits were tried to join tried to join this one so that it would like all come up together. And one of them was a married couple and the wife wasn't pregnant but she had a medical condition that if she were to become pregnant would be harmful for her. But mm. it was not considered serious risk and and she also couldn't take birth control because it was also harmful to her. But she was found to not, they, that married couple was found to not have standing, and so their case didn't continue. Uh, but they're, like, mm. still spoken about in the actual Supreme case, Supreme Court case. Mm. And then someone who also joined the suit, who, like, earlier in the suit was, like, allowed to be in, but then in the Supreme Court level was really not counted in, like, that was uh, taken away, wasn't allowed to join the suit. It was a physician who was prosecuted for conducting abortions and he argued that the law was vague because he didn't always know whether a woman's condition fell into like the serious risk component Mm. and he had actually already been prosecuted before and was facing charges during the time of litigation Mm. so yvette what was the issue that the court was addressing in this case the court was deciding whether or not the Constitution protects the ability of a woman to obtain an abortion, and the like, specific legal hook was whether or not the ability of a woman to have to obtain an abortion is embedded within the privacy that's guaranteed by the Fourteenth Amendment's concept of personal liberty. The court holds, Cynthia. They held that a woman's right to an abortion is embedded within a privacy guaranteed by the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action. So the decision divided pregnancy into trimesters, giving a woman total autonomy over her body during the first trimester and then differing levels of state interest during the second and third trimesters. And so this is just like the language from the court. We therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against, against important state interests and regulation. And so this holding really sets up the test. And if you study 14th Amendment, you know this test where it's if it 
they've decided abortion is a fundamental right. And so then you have to, any regulation limiting this right has to be justified only with a compelling state interest and the laws must be narrowly drawn to express only the legitimate state interest. And so, for example, if uh, you have a fundamental right to marry, right? And mm-hmm. so if the, for some reason, the state's like, well, we don't want anybody to get married. They have to say why, like why that's important to them and why they have like that interest at all. And then the law has to be like specific to that. So that's just, I picked an awful example, but it's like the first thing that came to mind because there's litigation on this before. But mm. that's that's kind of how this test works. So just to like kind of mm-hmm. give more in- information. Yeah. And so like a good way to think about this is that the court, um, like, the rec- the court recognized a fundamental right to privacy, but like the li- language that Cynthia quoted said, it's qualified. And um, the further that a uh, woman is in her pregnancy, the higher the state's interest is in protecting life. I guess is what yes, <laughs> the logic yes. is. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the compelling state interest here is they have a right to protect prenatal life. Um, and the court didn't answer what when they consider life to happen. They went through like the different mm-hmm. viewpoints. Like some think it's at conception. Some don't think it's until like later on. Some don't think. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that they included that like under the Constitution, like a person that there's n- all the evidence and all the language in the Constitution. A person only becomes a person upon birth. And so. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like important. I I'm glad they added that in, but they did include like some people think it is at conception, some people think it's a little bit like somewhere in between, but they left that unanswered and they just kind of went into like, well, okay, the first trimester, this is going to be when the woman has the most rights and like that right cannot be they cannot be abridged or impeded mm-hmm. on, but like the further on, then you're balancing the woman's interest and the state's interest. And so, which has actually been really awful but we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit more in a minute Yvette do you want to kind of talk about a little bit about the reasoning the court went through yeah um, so there's three reasons that are generally given to justify laws that criminalize abortions um, so I guess there's the like puritanical social concern related to discouraging illicit sexual conduct <laughs> sex so ridiculous marriage and sex like for any other purpose other than producing a child um and then also so like this kind of reasoning isn't really relevant now but abortion used to be kind of a riskier procedure and so the state also supposedly has an interest in protecting the woman's own health and safety and which then, we hear like, a lot now yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this test of the state's interest against like the woman's right to privacy has been really stretched by well, well, this is what you were alluding to earlier has been stretched and and constrained so that states pass all these annoying ass laws, try like and impede someone's access uh, to impede people's access to abortion um, under yeah. the guise of like protecting the woman's own health and safety um, like these things like where you have to wait 24 hours before you can go ahead and do the procedure and like yeah you know these laws that attempted to require spousal consent and um that you know 
we're trying to require parental consent for minors and it's yeah it's terrible and then um just like we were saying earlier the state has an interest in protecting prenatal life so what was the precedent like what led up to this case because if you read the case there's just so many other cases that are cited over and over again to kind of like support this holding can you talk about a little bit about some of them or one of them yeah so yeah so like um this precedent was born out of the this like court's emerging doctrine related to privacy and the first case that was kind of decided on this privacy ground was Griswold versus Connecticut which held that states can't restrict a married couple's ability to be counseled on and and receive access to contraception Um, and they uh, base this decision on this right to privacy like married couples can decide whatever they want to do related to sex and contraception like that's just their own personal decision um and this was like the first case to articulate a constitutional right to privacy okay i might ask that we do this case eventually because i remember reading it and i was dying at the justice like being like so how would you charge like how would you actually prosecute someone like what would be the evidence that you would use to oh my god like prosecute someone for having like broken this law and they and like the justice like goes through and like imagines the scenario it's like so the police come in they go into the bedroom and they like look through the trash can or like what is it that they find to prove this and they he was just like that is unacceptable i think that's this is that case so i'll well we might have to cover that because it was i was dying when i was reading it (laughs) i mean that is a pretty horrific picture like cops just coming into your intimate life like looking through your trash can (laughs) Yeah, I know. Okay, so <laughs> this case was pretty controversial, and it continues to be yeah. so, like, be very controversial. Mm-hmm. So, like, do you want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about, like, the debate that was going on then and, like, why some people say, like, this wasn't what the court should have done, even though they are, like, advocates for choice? Yeah. Um, so there's just, like, this ongoing debate about the scope of the role of the Supreme Court in terms of moving policy forward versus, like, just responding to what has already become accepted by general citizenry so like abortion was illegal in most states at the time of that the decision was made and like you know like we mentioned some states actually were taking the opposite course in the in like the year or two before the case was decided and so some people even if they're pro-choice argue that this was a right that should have been gained through the legislature because the legislature is a democratically elected and accountable body and the court is this insulated elite entity although also like the legislature is an elite entity but anyways but like I guess supposedly yeah. the difference is that um, the court is not democratically accountable for things that are so controversial there where like people have such differing views the idea is that this body that isn't accountable to us as voters shouldn't be making huge decisions like that i think people look to this case as kind of an example of like activist courts Um, it wasn't it wasn't a stretch i don't think because like the the precedent really did build up this idea of privacy rights but it's kind of like but at the end of the day like it it also was just kind of made up Um, and so people like feel like it makes the supreme court look less legit because they just made up this right yeah oh and if anybody's curious and wondering this decision was seven to two so there were only two justices who dissented from it so i thought Hmm. i I don't know it 
in an age of five yeah. fours, I it, thought it was important right. to point out that it was a seven two. Right. Yeah, and so um, I think something that's like interesting about this the decision then versus now is that um, at the time litigators and activists were really trying to use the decision to pursue rights for sex workers for like they were trying to make arguments expanding this privacy right to include women living with boyfriends when they were not married ah and like queer couples and it's I just found that interesting because when we think about Roe versus Wade all that we think about is abortion but this case is kind of about more than that it, it is about this concept of privacy and and there can be a lot of other things that are protected within that mm. it, well I guess that's a possibility but actually the opposite is occurring <laughs> how is the precedent that has been established by Roe doing now so it's being chipped away and it's kind of like you can think of this like for voting rights it's in yeah. the like the sense that people are attacking pieces of it instead of attacking mm. the president directly so for example like opponents of the law of a lo- and by the law i mean like the right for a woman to get an abortion they fight for bans on late-term abortion they make that harder and then they push for greater state regulation of abortions like we, there was recently like in texas right where texas was like mm-hmm. if you are going to do abortions you need to be like have full admitting privileges at a hospital and like have this mm-hmm. sort of certification under the excuse mm-hmm. that it was for women's health but really what it had the impact was it shut down most like almost all but like two clinics in the state and they also encourage malpractice suits against people like doctors who do or doctors. I think it's only doctors who mm-hmm. are allowed to do abortions. Right. And so they encourage malpractice suits against them. And then so there hasn't been a whole lot of cases, though, trying to overturn Roe directly. Again, it's been it's being chipped away. But because there's someone new that's going to be appointed by Trump, we'll probably start seeing cases maybe, that maybe are maybe not. Maybe the Democrats will. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Okay, but <laughs> I have to be hopeful. It's not easy to grow a spine, okay? That's not something that happens overnight. Yeah. Uh, they have no backbone, is what I was trying to say. Okay, so we'll probably see cases over trying to overturn Roe just flat out. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. oh, but I do want to mention that in 1992, there was a case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey which reaffirmed Roe and so like pe- people on both sides were happy though because Casey like reaffirms Roe but it allowed for a lot of restrictions on abortion to be like allowed by Roe which really weakened yeah. Roe and so mm-hmm. like the 24-hour waiting period that was seen as okay and so it really changed the test it well it added a component to the test where mm-hmm. now to determine whether a law is constitutional uh, unconstitutional it's the the test is in whether it's an undue burden on the woman and so i don't know i just don't like that test and i i'm glad roe was reaffirmed but it kind of like did it in a way where it like it was like yeah there's a right to abortion but you can really limit it <laughs> yeah i think like i don't have an issue with the test i just have an issue with how it's applied because like i don't think there should be an undue burden and i think that like basically every law that has been passed trying to regulate abortion is an undue burden like all of these things 24 hour waiting period that is an undue burden like yeah yeah and can i i also i want to say two things before we close on roe v wade that are a little bit ranty 
but I want to first I want to acknowledge though like the importance of seeing abortion rights in in relation to also like forced sterilization and other things Mm. so we have to consider like we can't like Mm -hmm. yes all women should be also like allowed to have abortions but and women's Mm -hmm. choices should just be uh, followed but that also goes we have to also be mindful of times when um when these laws are used against women of color or lower income women so you know a 24-hour waiting period before someone can like have an not like not talk not talking about abortion but before someone can like choose to be sterilized might be good when there's a lot of doctors forcibly sterilizing women while they're like under like just gave birth and have a lot of medication which has happened in los angeles and so i just one i just wanted to be mindful of that where it's like abortion is important and all women should have access to it but i just want to be mindful of how it interacts with other issues and that can't you shouldn't only care about access to abortion i guess is what i'm trying to say and then the last thing i want to say though about abortion it's just like jesus fucking christ like i we need to like not shame abortion at all it's like if you personally don't want to have an abortion that is fine no you shouldn't be forced to have an abortion again you should have the choice over your own body but like women who do choose to have them should not feel any shame at all and i heard Mm -hmm. someone else say this i can't remember where it was but it was like a comedian they were making the jokes and they're like the democrat party should ask like should make so there's abortion clinics every time like everywhere there's a mcdonald's you know like that's how common it should Mm -hmm. be you know and i agree Mm -hmm. like it's ridiculous <laughs> that it's like the secretive thing and we need to move past that and so i just wanted to give a major shout out for everybody who's had an abortion and yeah i hope you haven't been major shamed by it and i it's a, i'm proud of you and good for you for doing what you needed to do for yourself yeah and i just want to add to your first point that this is why like a, a reproductive justice lens is really Im- that incorporates the perspectives of women of color is really important because yeah like every woman should have access to abortion when you insert race into the analysis like actually like the right to have children and to raise a family is a right that is very frequently taken away from women of color like like what's happening at the border right now with children being separated from their parents you know i think that we need to think about all of these things at the same time we need to think about access to abortion rights but we also need to think about all of the ways in which the state is constantly wreaking havoc and terror on the lives of families of color and children of color and like yeah this this like concept of reproductive justice is much larger than than it's usually talked about oh yes and also like we shouldn't center womanhood on the ability to have children at all ever Mm -hmm. that also just needs to go out the window agreed yeah agreed okay let's end this segment there okay. uh, so for current events i wanted to talk about project dragonfly i just literally read about this yesterday and felt like i really had stepped in like i feel like the dystopian features here present so Google is launching a censored version of its search engine in China that's going to blacklist websites that talk about human rights, democracy, religion, and peaceful protest. And the project's code name is Project Dragonfly. And this project is very far in its execution. Like the app has been shown to the Chinese government. Um, so, Yvette, were you 
like I, I like that you said stepping into the dystopian future but I feel like we have so many of those moments every day but yeah were you surprised by this like is this surprising that Google is doing this I think like yes in the sense that it does mark a departure from Google's previous approach towards China um it it is now going to comply with the country's really strict censorship law which basically censors anything that the current communist regime disagrees with and this is the first time in almost a decade that google will have any kind of presence in china also only a few hundred people um at google knew about this project um the co- out of a company of like eighty-eight thousand people prior to this most recent media leak so for all those reasons, it's surprising. But then on the other hand, it's not that surprising given this really specific political moment of rising authoritarianism, um, you know, like across different types of regimes, like our supposedly democratic regime and like the communist regime. Um, there's just like r- rising fascism, rising authoritarianism, the lead of like the just emergence of leaders like Donald Trump who have a scary amount of power that they wield were you surprised by this this leak i was now especially like reading about more of google's history because in like 2010 google did withdraw from china even though it was like a lucrative market uh but although there's like arguments that google only did it because it wasn't that lucrative like at the at the time Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. also motivated by, like, the Chinese government hacking Google servers to get, like, user information. Specifically, like, there were some, like, human rights activists in China whose, like, emails were compromised. And and so, like, that motivated Google to, like, leave China in 2010. And so it is surprising. And I just, like, was wondering, like, what's changed for Google that made them go back into China and, like, just be okay with everything. And so I think we can talk about that a little bit later. But it's... Yeah, that's yeah. So th- I, there, it is surprising, but then the more I thought about it, it's not that surprising. Yeah. I it's think like it's just, like, more yeah. palatable in this moment to do that. Because, like, Google, withdrew, when it withdrew, it did so because of a of public outcry. And I feel like, like, th- I think this is a, a moment where it's more palatable. It's, it's very scary, but that's, like, the first difference that jumps out at me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So can you give us more context on, like, you know, what's the current internet setup in China? Yeah, so it's called the Great Firewall, and things like Google and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are blocked, and it blocks content that the government doesn't want its citizens to be reading, and that includes anti-authoritarian government books like 1984 by George Orwell, any kind of references to anti-communism, it, center, it censors um, Western media like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And also just like generally China has strengthened its surveillance state in recent years, which just makes this whole situation scarier. Yeah. And you already mentioned this, that like it censors information about human rights, too. And I was thinking about this and I kn- like what China is doing is definitely like an extreme example. But it just also reminded me of kind of like the censorship that goes on in the United States as well because I feel like leaving not letting people have access to this information by like deleting it off the internet and not letting them see these websites feels similar to me or feels like of the same kind where you know states will write textbooks and leave major history out you know so it's just like they don't want students to know this when they're like developing 
their minds and stuff. And so I feel like it's what China is doing is a different degree of something that the United States also does, in my opinion. I agree. Okay. And so do you want to talk a little bit more about like, well, I guess we already talked about how this is relevant to like the current climate we're in. Yeah. And it's just like, just what I was saying earlier, like a strong executive leader forcing an ideological agenda and restricting freedom of information and speech. And just wanted to note that like thing, a thing like this is like the step after fake news. Um, I think. What do you mean by that? Like, I think it's the, the way that Trump supporters act is very scary to me. Like the, like that they accept this concept of fake news so readily and like have totally discarded journalism like the New York Times and the Washington Post and like in doing so they make author like they make the job of Trump and authoritarian even easier um you know like they are adopting his ideological agenda and like are buying into this idea that like it's acceptable for the executive to censor what you're exposed to it's just and it's like kind of scary because it's not even it's not even forced on them like they they like are willingly censoring what they're exposed to yeah no that that makes sense and that kind of is making me think about you know, the argument that nothing online should be censored at all, like hate speech and yeah. like anything that's extremist, like extremist material, mm-hmm. because it leads to moments like this where like the technology is developed or where tech companies are being pressured to censoring and creating algorithms to censor things. And I, I there was an article written by someone who I think like had previous ties to Google and just like lived in a tech company and they wrote that oh this is what happens when you pressure like companies tech companies to do this work where like to work with the government and give over a lot of information so i don't know i i personally think that it's kind of like a typical slippery slope argument and i don't know what's right like i've been trying to sit with this and I, i don't know what's the right answer but it feels like we should be able to make a distinction between tech like tech companies censoring hate speech and censoring information like if we I guess if we had to err on a side I'd I'd want to err on the side of zero censorship but that also mm-hmm. leaves me feeling unsatisfied and I've talked to my dad about this before where he saw fake news as something that was like deliberately deployed as a means to justify government censorship down the line so he was just mm-hmm. like look like with all the actual fake news that was happening like the uh, pizza parlor in DC and stuff like that he was just like yeah <laughs> that is dangerous information and clearly has like very strict repercussions but he was just like but this is going to lead to government censorship and people are going to be okay with it because of things like this and then we're going to end up in a really bad place i don't know what do you think i i agree with your dad um i think i i like in in theory would want to be able to restrict the dissemination of hate speech but I I can't think of an entity I would trust with with such a task right like don't trust the government don't trust Google or Facebook 
And so that's why I would also err on the side of zero censorship because I don't trust the current institutions that would be tasked with censoring. Um, I, I, I believe in the importance of, of freedom of speech and freedom of information. I, I think that, I, I think that that is a valid concept and that like, we have a right to be exposed to different ideas. Yes, I agree. I think it's what just makes it so hard is that institutions that were previously relied on for me, I feel like there was always like, they lied to me and I no longer trust them. Like the New York times seems really great, but like there's a journalist who has pointed out how racist the New York times is like both in content and in layout, you know? And Mm -hmm. And then, like, my history books, like, after I started reading other histories, I realized, like, how much I was lied to in my history class, you know? And so, it, if all information is out there, I just don't know that it worries me that folks won't, like, there are folks who believe that, like, oh, there really hasn't been any lynchings in this country. And I'm just like, how can you believe that? But they do, you know, because that's the information they read and that they accessed. And so stuff like that terrifies yeah. me, but I guess there is no good solution. Or, like, It's a double-edged sword. This is hard yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about, <laughs> like, how this relates to us currently, specifically? Oh, I just thought it was funny in a dystopian way that most of the work of this project has been done in our very own Silicon Valley. Hmm. Yeah. These are the kind of people that come up on my Tinder, so this is why I like do not use Tinder in the Silicon Valley. Anyways, <laughs> side note. <laughs> so glad to be leaving. Yeah. Ugh. And then I just wanted to <clears throat> mention just generally that th- there's impacts uh, for us, be like not just folks in China, because this kind of technology will surely be adopted by other countries, maybe even our own, and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Ugh. as like the history of the FBI proves like the government uses technology on s- its citizens, usually without informing yeah. them. So we wouldn't not even maybe notice that we were being censored when it was happening. So just wanted to mention that even. Yeah. OK. On that light note, we, we will end this segment. <laughs> to recommend a book that I'm currently reading which I guess is kind of a premature recommendation but I really enjoyed the first half so I'm sure that the second half will be just as good Um, I've been reading Genesis by Eduardo Galeano and it's the first in a trilogy of his where he in a really poetic way outlines the the history of Latin America post-colonization and obviously that's like a huge task um and like he doesn't purport to cover every single fact but just kind of like does snapshots of of time and it's written really poetically and it's really good so i recommend it that sounds dope i'm gonna look into that Mm -hmm. i want to recommend uh castor oil i really liked it and i want to recommend it because for me, after like going through law school and I think th- the work that I did before law school, I 
became really, really stressed out. And I've always been someone who had um, like very full hair and I lost a lot of it. And that stressed me out a lot too. And even though I've tried to like distance myself between like how much I care about my hair as a sense of my identity, I discovered castor oil and I use it, I mix it with like coconut oil and some olive oil and I use it like twice a week on my hair. I leave it overnight and then I shower. Mm. And I've really seen a lot of hair growth come back. And that has, yeah, and that has just been like very calming. And also it feels like a self-care thing where like I take the time before I go to bed to just like apply it throughout my hair. And like, Mm -hmm. and that is like a very, very soothing process in and of itself. And so I just Mm -hmm. wanted to recommend it. If anyone also like struggles with hair loss the way that I, I do and have been, I recommend it because seeing like a bunch of baby hairs growing out has been really, really heartwarming to myself and uh, <laughs> my overly re- uh, complicated relationship with my hair. Cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Great. to sign off, we want to encourage you all to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cerebronas. Donate to our Patreon. Um, there's a link on our highlights on our Instagram and also on our link tree on our Instagram and oh yeah and like earlier Cynthia was saying that like her future goal for the podcast is for someone to be able to edit our stuff and that's also our Patreon goal we and so if you want us to get there then you obviously need to donate to our Patreon and you can Venmo us at Cerebronas as well appreciate those always and we just wanted to encourage people to leave an iTunes review. Um, we've gotten recent some recent reviews, and they've been really lovely. And um, please leave us a review. It, like, makes our day every single time. Yes, it really does. So, Eva, it was so, so nice to talk to you again, and I'm glad I caught you before you leave on your wonderful adventures. Yay! Bye, everyone. Bye.